We live in a community, a community of diverse people, different backgrounds, cultures, ethnicities, and perspectives. Not just here in Collin County, but across our nation and across the world. We live in a local, a national, and a global community. And it seems like right now, our community, our culture is incredibly divided and polarized. I think that we could find just about anything and everything over which we could argue. We're constantly drawing lines in the sand, deciding who's against us and who is for us. And one of the types of issues over which we most commonly argue are political issues. But I've begun to question, what do we mean by political? What do we mean when we say an issue is a political issue? How would you even define the word politics? Are politics something that Christians should care about? Should we engage in politics? Should we talk about politics? If so, how? Tonight, we are going to have an interview with Dr. Trey Orndorff, who is one of the political science professors from Oklahoma Christian University. Tonight, he's gonna to help us to think through how should we define politics and how should we think about politics from a Christian perspective. After this interview with Dr. Orndorff, I hope that you'll stick around because afterwards, we're going to look at a letter that was sent to some Babylonian exiles, and I believe that this letter can really help shape us in the way we think about, talk about, and engage in politics. Dr. Orndorff, thank you so very much for being part of this conversation. I am very impressed. Uh, we, we've only gotten a few minutes to visit today, but I got a chance to listen to some of your podcast, and I just really appreciate your perspective, your insight, uh, and I am incredibly excited for the congregation to hear some of your thoughts today. Uh, so I thought, as I was thinking about this, this topic that we're covering this month, I really thought, you know, it might even be helpful if we stop and even define the word politics. We throw around the term politics or political all the time. But I wonder if we really even consider what, what's the definition of that word. So, you know, just, and I know this is your field of study, but political science and why is that important for Christians? And, and what, is, what, what are we talking about when we talk about politics? Well, it's, a, it's a great question. And it's actually what I start all of my classes with. Uh, for political scientists in general, what we think of politics, it comes from a guy named Harold Laswell. And he actually wrote a book. It was back in the day when you made the titles of books a thesis as well. And the title of his book is The Definition of Politics, which is who gets what, when, and how. So we define politics as who gets what, when, and how. It's the distribution of stuff and, and why those things are distributed the way that they are. Uh, and that's what makes us really kind of related to things like uh, economics and psychology is, is we're all interested in that distribution of different kinds of points. Political science, specifically, what we're interested in in that distribution and who gets what, when, and how is the power relationships define who's getting the what. So another way of thinking about political science is to think about it's the study of power. How and why is power distributed the way that it is? So for example, if you just even think about in a classroom, uh, so all the students come into a classroom and they do all different kinds of things for me as their professor that they wouldn't do in other kinds of circumstances. So for example, they're not talking, they're waiting for me to give them permission to speak. Uh, but you would never do that, say with your wife or with your husband, right? You know, that would be kind of bizarre. If you kind of, but it has to do with the power distribution in that environment. So political scientists, what we wanna do is we wanna understand who gets what, when, and how, and specifically, we're looking at that from the context of 
how relationships as they're embedded either in families or all the way up into like states and governments. That's awesome. I think that that's, that's really helpful to, to understand that, that we're talking about something broader uh, and more general than just what we tend to think about <laughs> when we ta- talk about politics. Um, and, and, and sometimes I think that we think as Christians that maybe politics, maybe sometimes we over-engage, but other times uh, we, we feel like, well, maybe we should, that's not even something that we should delve into. But I feel like if, if we are loving our neighbor, if we are concerned for our neighbor, and if politics is about who gets what, when, and how, you know, then, then we, we do need to be, you know, at least interested in who gets what, you know, and, and I think that that needs to be something that we are engaged in that conversation to one degree or another. Yes, for sure. And I'm glad that you th- can think of it that way, because it is, in fact, as Christians, we have to wonder about I mean, we're called to think about the structure and power of the church. We're called to think about the power dynamics in our families. Uh, and so one of the things to kind of think about is, is you can't escape politics when you're thinking about it in terms of the relational power. And that doesn't mean that it's a good or a bad. It just means that we have to be aware of what those are. Now, it can be good and bad. That's one of the things that we bring as Christians. But it's not something that you can leave behind and say, well, I'm not going to think about Trump, so I'm not thinking about politics anymore. Well, no, you're making active decisions in your congregation and in your family about how you're making decisions. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so I think that as we delve just a little bit deeper into that conversation about politics, I think sometimes, and we probably do this with other, in other areas of our life and not just political discussions, but I think sometimes we oversimplify political issues and we tend to uh, think that they are more simple than they actually are. And maybe sometimes we overestimate how much we know and understand on issues. I know that I have, you know, I, I know that when I've looked at a at a maybe a headline or an issue, and I thought, well, I, I have a really good grasp of that, and I, I I think I can clearly see what's right, and I can clearly see what's wrong. And then as I've I've gone deeper into it, I realized, oh, number one, it's way more complicated than I thought it was, and number two, uh, I didn't understand it nearly as well as I thought that I did. So. Why do you think that that we tend to do that? Do you do you agree, first of all, that we tend to do that, and and why do we do that? And you know, what are some of the dangers with oversimplifying these these very complex issues? And and what are the dangers with thinking that we know more about something than we actually do? Well, we're actually there's there's a lot of empirical evidence to suggest that we're hardwired uh, to attempt to make quick decisions uh, because we have to make a decision. And so we're going to take whatever information that we have uh, and we're going to run with that. And you don't want to be second guessing yourself in the future. And so there's a lot of, there's a debate about whether it's uh, mental or if it's uh, psychological, uh, ingrained, genetic, but be that as it may, we tend towards that path. As a matter of fact, in political science, one of the things that we study is we call echo chambers. Uh, before we were, before we started recording, we were talking about things that people post online sometimes. Uh, and what happens in these kinds of circumstances is we don't have a whole lot of information. Instead, what we've heard is the same bits of information over and over and over and over again, but we hear them back at ourselves from people. And we tend to sequester ourselves into these, that's what we call them echo chambers. We sequester ourselves in these communities of like-minded people. 
And so by not hearing alternative points of view, it makes it easier and easier to simplify as you're talking about. And then it also makes it more difficult to then appreciate that somebody else might not have that same answer because you've heard over and over and over again in your echo chamber, well, this is the way that it has to be. Um, and so it becomes easy to then vilify it. It's also just part of the, the process of thinking about voting and power distribution. Uh, it's hard to have a conversation with somebody when you need the votes to win. And so there is in fact structural institutional reasons uh, to want to vote against people. And that kind of comes into play in the United States as well. So, you know, if the other person is a decent human being, um, if they're just maybe wrong on a few things, it's far harder to get passionate and have somebody show up at the polls. And so we're also just stoked in wanting to be passionate and that's what gets us out to vote. Um, and so there's a lot of reasons why we will be simplified. Um, and they're not all, I don't think there's any kind of evil boogeyman that's working. It's just kind of part of the flawed nature of humans. But as Christians, I think we have a framework for understanding that we're flawed and we might need to overcome that. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. So, uh, if you were to encourage uh, this church family as as they engage in, in conversations, or maybe they try to avoid conversations, whatever the case may be, um, but but as they have conversations about who gets what, when, and how, you know, as they engage in these conversations about politics, whether that's on a, a national level or on a local level, or even just on a community level, on more of a basic human interaction level, whatever the case may be, there's going to be disagreement. There's going to be uh, a need to see things from other people's perspective and, and a lack of seeing things from each other's perspective, a bias that's, that's at work. So what encouragement would you give to Christians about how to engage in those types of conversations and how to come out of it uh, having a positive uh, type of a situation rather than a negative one? I think part of it starts with actually listening. I think a lot of times when we engage in this space of, of uh, what we view as being politics, like we term at the local or the, even the national level, when somebody else is talking, we have a tendency to be already responding in our mind to what's going to happen next. And so what I really encourage your con uh, congregation to do is to say, when I'm talking to somebody who's not like me, turn me off for a minute. It doesn't mean I'm going to eventually agree with the person I'm listening to. So I'm not saying that, but just turn yourself off for a moment and actually hear what's being said. And then once you've heard what's being said, then think and criticize potentially internally, but don't do that like as a running narrative. Give that a chance to be on yourself. Going along with that, if there aren't any voices that occur to you that you find that are wrong, you're probably not listening to enough points of view. Uh, John Stuart Mill very famously said, we should never kind of be so certain that we're right that we turn off the possibility that other people are. So we shouldn't ever be scared of falsehoods. We should be willing to listen to falsehoods because that's just gonna sharpen truth. And every now and then it might come to pass that we'll listen to something we think might be wrong and say, wait a second, I had never really heard that before. Maybe I'm the one who's wrong and, you know, and have to internalize that. But we're, we're, you're never going to do it. So I guess my two really pragmatic suggestions are when you're encountering things, either in person or you're reading them, turn that internal critic off and actually just hear for a second. And the other is, is there's no people in your life that aren't like you. And if there's nothing you're reading that's not already like you, seek something out that isn't like you 
and encounter something uncomfortable and engage it. That is incredibly helpful, incredibly practical, and I really appreciate that. I, I hope that, that people will take the time to go and listen to the podcast that you're part of. So if you don't mind, kind of plug that for just a second and let people know where they can find that, because I think that kind of dialogue, that kind of discussion uh, is incredibly important, and I think people would really benefit from, from listening to that. Oh, I appreciate that. Well, the, the show that I co-produce is called The Politics Guys. Uh, and it was actually started uh, by one of my former professors, uh, Dr. Michael Baranowski. And what we try to do on the show is, is exactly what I've been trying to talk about is every show is always two different experts who have very different views about what's ultimate and true. So we have people like myself uh, who are scholars and Christians, and we have other who are kind of more on the right side of the spectrum. Uh, we have individuals like, for instance, my co-host, Ken Katkin. Um, who is a lawyer, but very much to the left on the political spectrum, but a very thoughtful human being um, and a different kind of religious background as well. We try to pit these voices. I say pit, that's probably the wrong word. We attempt to have these voices talk to one another. And so there isn't a show. We purposely have made a, a point to never have a show where we don't have at least two different viewpoints having a conversation about the issues that we're having a conversation about. Or when we do interviews, so we do our midweek shows and we talk and interview books, um, so example, I uh, did an interview recently about abolishing the Second Amendment. I was the one who did the interview because I'm pro-Second Amendment. So we always want to have that kind of conversation. So the Politics Guys is the name, and you can actually get it anywhere, Apple Music, Spotify, anywhere you find it, or you can actually head to our website, which is politicsguys.com. Um, and uh, just, you know, we don't advertise or make money on it. That way it's all listener supported. So people who want to have more views, that's who supports the Politics Guys. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you for the work that you're doing. And thanks for taking the time to, to be part of this conversation, brother. I really appreciate it. I appreciate having the chance to be here. I don't know about you, but that was an incredibly helpful conversation for me to think through politics being who gets what, when and how. That was an incredibly helpful definition because I don't know about you, but I think every Christian should be concerned about those questions about who gets what and how do they get that and when do they get that and what can we do to make sure that our neighbors have what they need. You know, I've been thinking about a passage from 1 Peter chapter 2 in which Peter tells his audience he tells them to abstain from the passions of the flesh, but in, so doing, but in so doing, he tells them that they are sojourners and exiles. I think that's a helpful way for us to think about our lives as Christians, as sojourners and exiles, not, not just on planet Earth. I, I don't think we should think about our life on this planet as sojourners and exiles, but I do think that we should think about our life amongst, as Peter puts it, the Gentiles as sojourners and exiles. I think that we should think of our time in the United States or whatever country you live in as sojourners and exiles. I think that we should, as much as we love Texas, if you live in Texas, I think that we should think of our time and life in Texas as sojourners and exiles. But what does that mean? What does that look like? What does it look like to live as an exile. I want us to consider a passage from Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29. So if you have your Bible, we're going to look at a passage in Jeremiah 29. But in chapter 28, there's a false prophet that, Hanan uh, that Jeremiah kind of goes up against, and his name is Hananiah. And Hananiah is telling people that the exile, 
people have just been taken off into Babylonian captivity. They're being exiled from Judah. And he's telling people that the exile is only going to last a couple of years, that after two years, the exile will be over. He says God told him that the exile was going to end, that God had broken the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, and that the exile was only going to last a couple of years. Well, God tells Jeremiah that Hananiah is a liar and that the exile will be much longer than that. The exile will be 70 years. Look at Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 4. This is a letter that Jeremiah writes to the exiles in Babylon. And he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Let's kind of stop there for just a second. So Jeremiah tells the exiles that you're going to be here a while. So don't, don't just kind of camp out for a little while. Don't think that your time here is just going to be temporary and you're going to be going home before you know it. Settle in. You're going to be here a while. Now, they're exiles. And again, if we're going to understand what it means for us to be exiles in this country, in this state, in this world, if we're going to be exiles in the way things are for now, we have to recognize that even though we're sojourners, even though we're exiles, even though we're aliens, even though as we sing, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through, we still have to recognize we're going to be here a while. And we have to settle in. And, and so Jeremiah tells the exiles to build houses, to plant gardens. And one of the most important things, I think, is what he says, seek the welfare of the city. In verse 8, he says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And don't listen to the dreams that they dream, for it's a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. So apparently Hananiah wasn't the only one who was saying the exile would be short and you're going to be going home before long. So don't settle in. Don't get comfortable here. You're going to be going home soon. And God says to the exiles through Jeremiah, you're going to be here for decades. You're going to be here for a very long time. So build houses, plant gardens, Seek the welfare of the city. Verse 10, he says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, back to Jerusalem. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. So God says, you still are a distinct people. You, as the Jewish people, you still are distinct and you still have a distinct hope and you still have a distinct identity, but you need to settle in because you're going to be in Babylon for a while. This is exactly what it means to be in exile. This is what it means to be a sojourner. It means you have a unique identity, you have a unique hope, but you're going to be in the place where you are for a while. Verse 13, you will seek me, God says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. You know, I was thinking about this idea of living as exiles, and it occurs to me, and, and really I've, 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 
heard this thought from, from an author named Tim Keller. He expresses it a little bit differently, but I think there's, there's a spectrum, a spectrum of how exiles might live. That people that know that they have a distinct identity and a distinct hope and a distinct way of living, there's, there's a spectrum of how they might live. On one end of the spectrum, you might call it entangled. Tim Keller says assimilated. And so on one end of the, the spectrum, the exiles in Jeremiah's day, they could have become entangled in Babylonian culture so that they lost their identity, so that they lost their hope, so that they considered themselves just another Babylonian people group, just another Babylonian ethnicity, that they just became assimilated into Babylonian culture and they lost their sense of self. They lost their sense of identity and community. And I'm sure that for many exiles, that's exactly what happened. Many of them got new names and many of them, I'm sure, began to worship the Babylonian gods. God didn't want his people to become entangled in Babylonian culture. But on the other end of the spectrum, you might say it would be detached where they're just saying, hey, we're just gonna stay in tents for a while because we're only gonna be here for a couple years and then we're going home. God doesn't want them to be entangled where they lose their identity and they give their loyalty and allegiance to Babylon, but he also doesn't want them to be detached where they say, I don't care about Babylon. I don't care about the city. I don't care about the people. I don't care about the culture. I don't care what happens to them. I don't care if good things happen to them or bad things happen to them. This isn't my place. This isn't my home. These aren't my people. I'm just here for a minute and then I'm going home. God doesn't want them to be detached, but he doesn't want them to be entangled either. I think from, from Jeremiah's letter and from everything the New Testament tells you and I about living in this world in which we're living, this community in which we're living, this nation in which we're living, is that we can't be entangled and we also can't be detached. But I think somewhere in the middle there is faithfully engaged. We might just say engaged, but, but I like faithfully engaged. We're not entangled so that we lose our sense of identity and our, our, our hope and we're not detached where we say, I don't care what happens to these people. I don't care what happens in this place. These aren't my people. This isn't my home. I don't care. I'm going somewhere else. That's not our attitude either. We've got to be faithfully engaged. Jeremiah tells the people that are living in exile, God speaks to his people through Jeremiah and tells them to seek their welfare, to seek the welfare of the city. So in a sense, we do say, for now, this is my home, and I do care about these people. And what happens to these people, it matters to me. What happens to my neighbor, it matters to me. Yes, I'm a sojourner. Yes, I'm an exile. Yes, this living here and right now, this isn't my ultimate hope, and it's not my identity. But these people all around me, in my city, in my county, in my, in my state, and in my country, in the world, all of these people, they should matter to us. And we have to be engaged to some extent to seek the welfare of our city, of our community, of our state, of our country. We should want what's best for people. So on the one hand, to be entangled is not to be faithful to our identity and our hope. We are exiles in Texas. 
here exiles in the United States or we're exiles in whatever state, whatever country, whatever city, whatever community we live in. Our ultimate hope is not in the eternal existence of Texas or the eternal existence of the United States. That's not going to happen. These countries, these governments, these nations, these communities, they're temporary. And as exiles and sojourners, we understand that. We understand that the only thing that's eternal is God and the city of God, the, the city not made with hands. But we also don't want to be detached. To be detached is to be unfaithful to our calling. We're called to love our neighbor as ourselves. Like the exiles living in Babylon, we are called to seek the welfare of our city. We have to care what happens to our neighbors because God cares what happens to our neighbors. We have to be faithfully engaged, remembering who we are, remembering whose we are, remembering what our identity is and what our hope is, what's to come, but also what we're called to do and how we're called to live. But that's complicated, isn't it? Seeking the welfare of our city, seeking the welfare of our community, seeking what's best for people in our country. And we're not always going to see eye to eye on that, are we? There's going to be times where the way you think that this is what's in the best interest of my community or for things to happen this way, that's in the best interest of my community. And, and the way I think, well, no, actually, I think this is in the best interest of the community. We're not always going to see eye to eye. It's these political, and when we say political, again, we mean who gets what, when and how. These are complicated issues, but we care. We care about what happens. We care about who gets what. We care about when they get that. We care about how they get it. And we all should be engaged in one way or the other in making sure that everyone has what's in their best interest. But even that, even the engagement piece of it, how do we engage? To what extent do we engage? We're, we're going to disagree on that sometimes, aren't we? You're going to think the best way to engage in helping our community is like this. And I might think, no, 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 that's not the best way to engage. It's like this. We're going to not always see eye to eye on everything, on how to seek the welfare of our community or how to engage in seeking the welfare of our community. But, but hopefully we can all agree on the best character an attitude that we should have as we seek the welfare of our community. Hopefully we can recognize that, that our neighbors that might disagree with us on some things, chances are they just want what's best for themselves and for their family and for their community. You and I might disagree on how they're going about it. We might disagree on what we think the best for them actually looks like. And we might disagree on how we engage in that and how we go about achieving those things. But hopefully it helps us to know that we all want what's best for ourselves and for our family and for our community. And hopefully as Christians, whatever we do, however we engage in this process of loving our neighbor and making sure that our neighbor has what's in their best interest, hopefully we can do it in a way that shows that we are spirit-filled and spirit-led people so that we live lives that are full of love and joy, 
peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is what it looks like to be spirit-filled people. And as spirit-filled, spirit-led people that are walking by the spirit and are seeking the welfare of our neighbors, however we engage with that, however we go about that, whatever we think that looks like exactly, we know that this is what it looks like to follow Jesus, is to be people that are filled with love and joy, peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so, no matter how we, how we go about engaging with our neighbors, no matter how we go about seeking their welfare, hopefully we understand that there's going to be times when the world, when the world is going in a certain direction, when the currents of our culture are moving in a certain direction. But you and I, because we're followers of Jesus, because we're striving to walk by the Spirit, because we're seeking not just what's in our own welfare, what, not just what's in our own best interests, but what's in the best interests of our entire community. Because we are striving to follow Jesus, because our true identity and our hope is tied up in who we are in Christ, hopefully we recognize that even though we are trying, just like everybody else, to do what's in the best interests of our community, there's going to be times where we have to swim against the current. There's going to be times where we have to go in a different direction than our community is going in or that the culture is going in. And over the next few weeks, I really want to examine that. I want to examine how is our culture moving? What directions, what multiple directions is our current, our current culture moving in? And what does it look like for followers of Jesus who both recognize that this world is not our home, this country is not our home, this state is not our home, but we care about the people here. We care about our neighbors. How do we swim in a different direction? How does Jesus give us the faith to follow him and not follow the current culture. I really hope that this lesson and the lessons over the next few weeks will encourage us to follow Jesus and not follow the currents of our current culture.